Hi, I'm Jim Juno. You have found the Juno Files, and I am talking with Dwayne Epstein. He has the, or rather, he is the author of the book Lee Marvin Point Blank. Dwayne, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Jim. Now, Lee Marvin, this guy was for even for the younger members, younger listeners of this podcast, Lee Marvin is still well known as you say in the book, or as as MTV once said, one of the best badasses That's in right. the movies. He was voted one of the top ten badasses. I think it was came in as number five of uh, the top and, ten badasses of all time. And the book is called Point Blank, and that was a title of one of his best-known movies. Uh, can you tell me how you go ahead? Can you tell me how you came upon the title? Uh, yeah, well, I kind of explained that in the intro. I came up with several variations, um, most of them a little too long to my publisher's satisfaction, but in researching the book, which took me well over 20 years, uh, not over 20 years, almost 20 years, um, not by choice, it just took that long to find a publisher, but uh, the research was ongoing, and I tried to discover a kind of a, the best way to describe Lee Marvin's persona, his screen style, and unlike other actors of his generation and also those before him and after, his style was very um, in-your-face, confrontational, pulled no punches. And I figured the best way to describe that would be with that two-word phrase. It says it all. Lee Marvin, point blank. That was his yeah. And he, I mean, what you saw on the screen was a lot like what he was in real life, wasn't he? Absolutely true. Um you know, there's this thing that a lot of film fans uh, like to talk about that, that, you know, John Wayne wasn't really acting. He played the same character over and over again. But in truth, I, I always considered that kind of thing unfair. Not just John Wayne, but anybody, Bogart, whoever. They created those personas. That's, you know, John Wayne wasn't the John Wayne he was in True Grit or, or The Searchers or any other great film that he made. It was the persona he created. Same thing with Bogart. Um, and a lot of times they had to work up towards that. It was a metamorphical, if that's even a word, it was a metamorphosis <laughs> in which they created the personas through different projects that they went through. Lee Marvin came to the screen, and several people told me this, Lee Marvin came, uh, that he worked with, Lee Marvin came to acting fully embodied. What you saw from the very first time you saw him on screen was what you saw of him at the end of his life, and he had a heck of a run, 30, 40 year career. But, that persona and that talent, um, as far as I'm concerned, talent uber alles, but that pers uh, uh, the personality and the charisma that he had, it was there from the very beginning. Some actors had to work up to that, as good as they were and as legendary as they are. Guys like Paul Newman or, or Burt Lancaster, who famously said early in his career, I'm learning this on the job, and if my fans stick with me and go on this journey with me, then they're in for some surprises. And sure enough, if you watch Burt Lancaster, whom I'm a big fan of, by the way, from the beginning of his career, he the progression was phenomenal to watch, but it was a progression. Same thing with Paul Newman. Newman, it seemed, took a lifetime to learn how to do comedy, to have a soft touch uh, in terms of those kinds of performances. And even in drama, I think he reached his peak when he was much older with films like The Verdict and the like. Um, Marvin, Marvin didn't have to wait that long. Everything you saw him do, and he did well, and he would like shock you or surprise you or impress you, he did that from the beginning. And that was one of the many, many wonderful things I discovered in doing the research. 
And ironically, the role that he won is, he was, like you said in the book, one nomination, one win in the Oscars. Yep. It was for Cat, for Cat Ballou, the, uh, I mean, a role which was against type for him, would you say? Wouldn't you say? Um, it was only in the sense that people probably didn't expect something like that from him. But in truth, he got the part. He was like fourth or fifth on the list <laughs> to get the role when he finally did get it. Uh, but he got the part because the director had seen him on TV in a rerun of the movie he made with Marlon Brando, The Wild One. And the character he played in that was a rival biker to Marlon Brando. And the director, Elliot Silverstein, uh, said that he loved the way Lee Marvin fell off his motorcycle and that he did it in a comical fashion. And he said, anybody who could do something like that can do what I need him to do in Kapaloo. They were the producers wanted Kirk Douglas, but Elliot Silverstein didn't think an actor of Kirk Douglas's caliber would be willing to do some of the goofy, silly things that were required for the part. So he asked Marvin. Marvin was on a fence at first, but his agent and his wife both read the script and loved it and told Lee, you've got to do this. You'd be perfect in this. And one of the reasons why I think he was so successful in the part was that he was kind of doing a parody of other characters he had played in the past. I mean, you could see a little of Liberty Valance in um, the character. He he played two characters, by the way. He played uh, um, Kid Shaleen, the main um, character he played, but he also played the character's twin brother, Tim Strawn. And Tim Strawn is a hired killer. And Tim Strawn himself is a lot like Liberty Valance. And Kid Shaleen, who's a broken down gunfighter, drunken, broken down gunfighter, would be probably Liberty Valance had he lived, you know? <laughs> um, so it is kind of surprising, especially since it's a comedy as well, which it was not meant to be. It didn't start out that way. It got turned into a comedy. Um, at, when the film was in pre production, they, they messed with the script a little bit to make it infinitely funnier. Um, but Lee Marvin was actually, in many ways, perfectly cast in that role, even though it may not seem so on the surface because it's a comedy role. I see, and one of the movies that he's best known for, and I think this is what introduced me to Lee Marvin as well as I believe you, you introduced you, was The Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. <laughs> I think it's oh, together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, that's so funny, too, because there are a lot of people younger than me um, that if I ask if they're familiar with Lee Marvin, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they scratch their head thinking that name is familiar. And then I'll say, have you ever heard of a movie called The Dirty Dozen? And they'll go, oh, yeah, that guy. I love that movie. <laughs> that seems to be the thing he's most remembered for, which is, you know, I think that's great. <laughs> it's a great movie. Well, see, how did he land that role? He got that role because John Wayne turned it down. But I don't want to be belaboring John Wayne in any way. But John Wayne was offered the role first, and when he read the script, he turned it down. Because if you remember the film, the ending is pretty brutal. And um, Wayne said he didn't think his audiences wanted to see him incinerate a bunch of women and um, you know and Nazis. And when Marvin read the script, Marvin was like, yeah, I'm fine with that. Scream <laughs> <laughs> on. That's cool by me. <laughs> I tell you what, one of the, one of my favorite roles of his, and this may be unfamiliar with a lot of people, he was in the Twilight Zone. Ah, uh, yes. And it was the episode called The Grave. The Grave. Yep. And it it's memorable. It's memorable because he has to prove his manhood, which is something you never expect Lee Marvin having to do. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's why. True. But. Um, 
let me ask you this. How, by the way, if, if I may, real quick, sure. I love the moodiness of that episode. I think it's done really well, but the payoff is one of the worst in Twilight Zone history. Oh. Yes, I think that ending is ridiculously stupid. I'm sorry, but the other one he did, the one about the uh, uh, the robots, and and you know it's it's rather futuristic. Mm-hmm. The show was made in the early '60s. It takes place in the late '70s, and they outlaw boxing because it's inhumane. Yes, and so that's he right. steps into the ring as a robot. Adley I think that's one of the best. I love that oh, episode. Not just incredible. because he did it; it's just a well done thing. Later made into a feature film with um, Hugh Jackman called yes, Real, Real Steel. Steel. Yep, same same premise. And see, and that's and that's something. I mean, at the end of that episode, when he is talking to the robot, you see this pathos and and emotion from him. Absolutely. You know, there's a thing that's often been said about actors that that um, actor a really good actor can cry on cue. And Richard Burton famously was asked about that because he apparently wasn't able to do that. And his response was, it's not my job to cry, it's my job to make the audience cry. And there are several instances in Lee Marvin's career where he proves himself worthy of just that phrase. One of them being that episode of The Twilight Zone. I call that one of his great lump-in-the-throat moments. Another was in the movie Monty Walsh, another one of my all-time favorites, and it's underrated and really should be seen again by everybody. He's so poignant and touching in that movie. It's an elegiac western. And also in the ending to uh, the Sam Fuller film, The Big Red One, Yes. When he has that refugee child from the concentration camp on his back and he's walking him around the camp. Oh, I can't watch that without tearing up. It's just so powerful. But he himself is just absorbing the situation. You don't see him come to tears. Nor does he in any of the examples I just gave you. That's, that to me is the sign of great film acting. Um, because film is very different than any other medium in that He's able to project those feelings onto the audience, and they relate to that. Uh, that's one of the things that makes, in my opinion, for great acting. All the greats can do that. Why do you think that there was no biography? Yours was the first real biography written about it. Uh, Thank why you. Was- um, there were one or two other books prior to mine, but there wouldn't be anything you might call definitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a book about his uh, career called The Films of Lee Marvin that came out. There was a book that was written when he was still alive that was done with his cooperation, although he later said um, he told a lot of stories and he told the author what he wanted to hear. And so, you know, you can flip a coin as to how much of that is truth and how much of it is fiction. Um, I think at the time that I began the project, which was in the early 90s, Marvin had been dead already about four or five years. And we it, granted it was before the internet and what have you but as far as pop culture goes in this country we have a very short memory we're very transitional as a nation and as a culture and if it's not immediate right now it's not always remembered and the biggest problem I encountered was publishers who would tell me um, they liked the proposal and, and what I had planned to do with it but they would say uh, nobody remembers him uh, he's been gone too long Lee Marvin isn't somebody who jumps out as as some, you know, there are market concerns, obviously, and that's what publishers are concerned with. Now, my publisher at Schaffner Press was, is situated in um, Arizona, which is where Lee Marvin spent the rest, the last few years of his life, in Tucson uh, specifically. And luckily, when my agent had sent the proposal to Tim Schaffner, that week in his neighborhood, they were having a Lee Marvin special at the video store. (laughs) So, uh, that timing worked out. And Tim Schaffner, whom I still consider one of the most forward-thinking independent publishers in America, 
he took it on. He said yes. And much to everybody's surprise, when the book came out, it was a hit. That uh, And he told me, and I love when he told me this, that when he met with the distributor where other small independent houses meet for once a year conference, several of the other publishers came up to him and said, boy, I wish I'd have done your Lee Marvin book. It's great. And look at the sales numbers <laughs> and look at the reviews. And, and when he told me that, I said, hey, they had their chance. If they're jealous, that's their problem. That's right. <laughs> that's totally right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I always felt that there was – a market for it. It was just a matter of convincing somebody, and luckily I was able to convince Tim Schaffner, and it worked. Now, now as as an off, uh, as offspring, uh, my father and both my mother served in World War II, and my father served in Italy and in North Africa. Wow. Um, yeah, under Patton. Um, rarely talked about his experiences during the war. Um, Lee Marvin, though, he also served. He saw combat. He was wounded. And, I mean, what you saw on the screen, again, I don't want to repeat the question I asked earlier, but he, he employed a lot of his experiences in the war into his performances. Absolutely he did, and I'm glad you brought that up. Let me tell you something. When I was researching the book, you got it, it, I was trying to think of a way to understand what it was he did on film better than anybody else. And it came and with the research and having seen every single film he ever made more than once, I came to the conclusion that he pretty much created the the modern American cinema of violence. To my mind he was to film violence what Elvis Presley was to rock and roll or or what Marlon Brando was to modern screen acting. He was a pioneer of sorts. And having discovered that and, and confirmed that, my question then became why him? How did that happen? Where did that come from? And clearly, it came from his experiences in the war. Now, the research included looking into certain aspects of what that experience was. And I came to the, and I always preface this by saying, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a doctor or analyst in any way, but I came to the conclusion that he suffered greatly from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And unlike having suicidal tendencies or other uh, things that would be very detrimental, he took those experiences and that, and that behavior and channeled it into his work. And that's where that came from. He always said that uh, um, he wanted to make violence on screen as realistically as possible because he felt that would be a greater deterrent. I don't necessarily adhere to that uh, um, philosophy, but he he certainly did. He said, you can't just have a barroom brawl where two guys beat each other up and one gets a little trickle of blood in the corner of his mouth and then they have a beer together. He said, that's phony and it encourages violence. you got to make violence as real as possible. And he used countless examples in interviews and he always brought it up. And to my mind, that's what it was that made Lee Marvin so individual and so central and important to American cinema. And I and I emphasize American because they were already starting to do stuff like that in other countries, like in Europe with uh, Sergio Leone and other filmmakers, and in Asia with uh, Akira Kurosawa. But, you know, with the production code in this country and with censorship and the studio system, it took a long time to break that down. And Marvin became, uh, you know, popular on screen around the time when those things started to crumble. So he was the right man at the right place at the right time, and he took it on. A lot of people have said it was, you know, that it was Clint Eastwood or if it was Charles Bronson or possibly Steve McQueen. Marvin predated them by several years. He he was able to establish himself. His his film career took several stages, and by the time he was poised to be a major film star, 
that's when the production code ended. That's when the studio system was over. So every uh, star was more of a free agent than a contract player. And that's when he was offered the roles in movies like The Killers, which was made for TV, considered too violent, and it was released in theaters. And also Capaloo. And then from there, a string of amazing action films. The Professionals, The Dirty Dozen, Point Blank. I mean, one right after another. That once he was able to have a say in what he was able to do and what his career, where his career would go, his taste in scripts and filmmakers were perfectly in sync with what he wanted to say and do on film. It's amazing. Tell me about one of my favorite stories in this book was the Robin Hood Party. <laughs> I got lucky in that I was able to um, interview several of the participants before they passed, including the late, great Woody Strode. Um, I got the last interview with him. He was a wonderful interview. He loved Lee Marvin like a brother. Um, the other was the stuntman, a gentleman named Tony Epper, part of the Epper stunt family dynasty. And um, they were both there, and they both – their versions were slightly different in little aspects here and there. And Woody Strode, as I said, it, he wasn't he wasn't the best of health. He was dying of mm -hmm. cancer, pancreatic cancer when I interviewed him. Mm -hmm. So if he fudged a little bit, I can understand. And I told Tony Epper the same version that Woody Strode told me, and Tony's reaction was, look, if you want to print Woody's version, that's fine by me. I don't care. But I <laughs> – I tended to believe Tony Epper more, and um, the Robin Hood story worked worked like this. And if people want to hear the payoff, they got to read the book. But this was exactly. But this was the setup. They were filming the movie The Professionals in in Nevada, in uh, the blistering desert heat of Nevada, and they were billeted in Las Vegas at the Mint Hotel at the time, and. You know, all those Rat Pack stories that are great, as far as I'm concerned, Lee Marvin and his boys put a much bigger dent in Vegas than they ever did. Because <laughs> one morning, they partied every night after work, and one morning he was kind of hungover, Lee Marvin, and a reporter was there to interview him. And Marvin was hanging out his balcony while they were talking, and on one side of the street, which was the ent entrance of the strip, was that big, what they call the Vegas Vic sign, that giant neon sign that waved and said, Howdy, mm -hmm. partner! And it was on a big uh, bullhorn kind of microphone thing. And on the other end of the street, in front of a, a brand-new casino, I don't remember which one, was a big inflatable King Kong. Uh, and it would billow in the wind kind of thing. And, and Marvin, being hungover and not in a good mood, he pointed to the Vegas Vic sign and he said, One of these days... I'm going to shoot that son of a bitch right in the mouth. And then he turned and looked at King Kong and went, and that goes for you, too. And so <laughs> later that night, meanwhile, later that evening, uh, Tony Epper and Woody Strode and um, several uh, Vegas uh, uh, chorus girls, dancing girls, were all partying in their room. And because Woody Strode ha uh, was supposed to, in the film, he was supposed to be, a, a an archery marksman, he had a set of bow and arrows with him, with steel head arrows. And a lot of the uh, stunt work was done by, uh, the arrow shooting was done by um, Tony Epper and also another gentleman who at the moment, his name escapes me. The reason being, as Tony Epper told me, was that Woody Strode couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a bow and arrow. <laughs> and, in fact, he said before one setup. He, the direct, Woody Strode asked the director, Richard Brooks, before he did the bow and arrow sh shot, he said, would you mind if I put my glasses on for this? And Richard Brooks said, no, you can't wear your glasses. It's a Western. Anyway, um, so 
they proceeded to do exactly what Lee Marvin had asked them to do, had, had said he was going to do. And they shot the Vegas Vixen, and they blew it out. It was mostly Tony Epper. Tony Epper hung off the side of the balcony, and Woody Strode, who if you remember Woody Strode and what he looked like, was a pretty muscular buff son of a gun. He held Tony Epper so he could lean outside the balcony, and then he shot the King Kong sign. Um, but as Tony Upper told me, it took a couple of tries, and several of the arrows landed in the parking lot and <laughs> went right into the pavement of the parking lot. These were steelhead arrows, big, wow. thick ones. And he said they were like armor-piercing bullets. And he and when he told me that, I started laughing, and I was like, "Did you know that if any you know if anybody may have gotten hurt walking through the parking lot?" And Tony Upper said, "Well, we didn't know it at the time, but luckily they didn't." <laughs> <laughs> and the cops were called. And oh my God. The uh, the thing that I love about that whole story was that I should, I I wasn't going to give it away, but I'll give it away. Lee Marvin had nothing to do with it. It was everybody thought it was him, and it was printed in the papers as such. But according to Tony Epper and Woody Strode, Lee had passed out hours before they even started. And when the cops showed up, he was lying naked in the bed, and they were shaking him, going, "We, you know, you got to come downtown with us, sir," and all this kind of stuff. And Tony Epper and Woody Strode had put the bow and arrows in bed with Lee Marvin and then ran out of the room. So when the cops got there, <laughs> I, you know, I love that story. But i got to tell you something. In fairness, when you're dealing with a guy like Lee Marvin, whose escapades became legendary, uh, his drinking escapades, and he drank because he was an alcoholic, and he was an alcoholic because of his PTSD. When you're, right, when you're researching and hearing these stories from people, after a while, it really leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It gets kind of like, oh, my God, not again. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't married to the guy. I wasn't one of his kids. I wasn't a family member, so I didn't have to deal with it on that level. But even just witnessing other people saying it, it got to be too much. So the only stories I put in, and there were a lot more I left out, were the ones that I thought really enlightened something about his personality or his character as a person. And, you know, the thing is, when you're a major movie star in the 1960s, you become, you know, people at parties that would see the things he would say or do would be embarrassed by it, but the next day it would be the talk of the town. So in a weird way, it was kind of encouraged culturally and socially where, where his realm of influence was. And so that was a kind of a way to keep encouraging that behavior, despite efforts on his part. To try, he went through everything. He went to a psychiatrist. He did, you know, he went to AA. He tried being a dry drunk for a while. He did it all, but he never really quite kicked the habit. And as I like to say, in terms of not being a clinician, when I was researching the book and I saw what the symptoms of PTSD were, if you listed all ten of them, he probably had eight. <laughs> so My God. Yeah, it was, and uh, I think screaming nightmares, alcoholism, uh, um, and when he would drink, he would be an angry, mean drunk. Uh, sometimes, sometimes he'd be a happy drunk, but you know, and just and and a a a a preponderance towards violence and things he said and did because he didn't keep it within his film. Sometimes it did spill over into his real life, um, as you I point out in the book. Now you don't shy away from that now. Many, maybe some younger listeners here may know of Lee Marvin from the uh, from the trial, uh, the Palomar oh, yes. trial. The Palomar and you don't shy away from that in the book, but Thank you do you, set the I... go ahead. Um, you do set the record straight though, because a lot of people have a misconception that he lost that trial. 
almost everybody did. As a matter of fact, I was I was around when that trial was going on, and I thought the same thing. And it wasn't until I did the research that I realized he won that case on every count, every single count. And the reason why people think he lost was because the trial judge asked him to give Michelle Trioa $104,000 in compensatory costs so she could get so she could have money to get training for a job. A new, a new life, a new job. And Marvel was fine with that. He said, that's, that's less money than what I was willing to give her before we went to trial. So, yeah. <laughs> and then there was an interesting thing that happened with the, um, with, when, when he went for the appeal. His lawyer, whom I interviewed, uh, he, he was a gentleman named David Kagan, he told mm-hmm. me that he asked Marvin, would you want to get that money back on appeal? And Lee Marvin said, no, 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 I, I, I'm done with this. I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. And then David Kagan said, didn't you hate the way they treated you in court? And that's when Lee Marvin said, okay, go for the appeal. <laughs> and the result of that is in the book, and that readers are going to have to find out for themselves. Exactly. Now, one last question I've got to ask you about the sons of Lee Marvin or the, uh, or the other group. Uh, bastard, bastard son of Demar. Of which I'm a proud member, by the way. <laughs> I, congratulations! I mean, how now? How did you find out about this? I uh, I, I got to tell you, that's a great story because I wasn't quite completely sold on doing the book yet, or even you know taking on the project on any level. I was still doing the initial research. Now I was in a library looking up magazine articles on Lee. And I came across this article in um, Film Comment Magazine, which used to do a periodic running column called Guilty Pleasures. And by definition, a guilty pleasure is a movie that you know is bad, but you love it anyway, yes. for a specific reason. And one, one column was written by Jim Jarmusch, uh, the, the very independent Maverick filmmaker who's still going strong today. And in, in one of his choices... It wasn't a specific Lee Marvin film. It was just Lee Marvin in general. And he explained about the sons of Lee Marvin. And that was the first time I had read about it. And when I, I've been a movie fan my whole life, okay? And I know about the popularity and the cult of the likes of Humphrey Bogart or Marilyn Monroe or John Wayne or James Dean, Montgomery Clift, and it's understandable for their given personas and, and um, their legacies and what have you. I had, in all that time, I've been a movie fan, almost since birth. I had never read anything like that in my life about a film fan. I know about appreciation societies and fan clubs, but The Sons of Lee Marvin was new to me. And when I read that, and the little anecdote he tells about Lee Marvin's son and one of the members, Tom Waits, I laughed out loud and got kicked out of the library. (laughs) It just took me completely by surprise. I had never read anything like that in my life. And then when I got to know and interview uh, Lee Marvin's son, Christopher Marvin, he told me an even better story. He told me the straight story. Jim Jarmusch made that story up about about Christopher Marvin and Tom Waits. And once again, you have to read the book to get that story. Not a problem. Well, Dwayne, I appreciate you taking time. Dwayne Epstein is the author. The book is Lee Marvin Point Blank. It is published by Schaffner Publishing. And his paperback novel, uh, the paperback version, rather, came out a short while ago. And I highly recommend you pick it up. Dwayne, thanks again for being on the Juno Files. Thank you. Can I just add one thing real quick? Sure. Okay. Before we went on the air, good folks, Jim told me he read the book and he liked it a lot. So if you want to read it too, you can get it on Amazon at Lima, you know, bring up Lee Marvin Point Blank, do a Google search, or by my name, Dwayne Epstein, or Schaffner Press, or my website, which is called pointblankbook.com. 
I blog on there all the time and you, about the book and ancillary information, and it's still very much available in all three formats: hardcover, paperback, and ebook. Yeah, that's what. And if you're if you have a Kindle like me, the ebook is the way to go because I love I love this little machine. But um, <laughs> Dwayne, again, thank you for for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jim, for having me. I appreciate it. And hopefully we can talk again soon because for the next project I'm working on, you might be interested in as well. And we can talk about that. Uh, what are we talking Can we reveal anything or is it is it still under wraps? It's still under wraps. I did sign a contract with a publisher. It'll be out next year. And if people like Lee Marvin, they're going to love this next book. Folks, there you hear it. We're going to be back on. Okay. <laughs> Well, Dwayne, thanks again, and that's the Juno Files for now.